0: Welcome to Frontline Church, South Oklahoma City's podcast page, where each week we will upload a new sermon uh, from our current sermon series that we're in. If you have uh, any questions, concerns, um, or have a prayer request or need, you can email us at hello at frontlinechurch.com or visit our website, south.frontlinechurch.com. Thanks.
1: Thanks. Scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 12:31 through 13:13. 13, 13. The word of God speaks to us. But earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is God's word to us.
0: Thanks be to God. Amen. Well, dearly beloved, we've gathered here today in the sight of God— to study a passage that we might think we know because we've been to weddings. Good morning. Welcome. My name is Sean. If you don't know me, I get to serve as one of the pastors here. We are in the book of 1 Corinthians. We've been doing this for uh, about nine months now. And uh, today we come to chapter 13, which has been called by some the most famous chapter in the whole Bible. And if it's not the most famous, it very well might be the most misunderstood Uh, The danger that we have in front of us today is because we've heard this so many times, we think we know it, and we should take a pause um, when that happens. We hear the call to love, and we say, oh, yeah, we know this part. We've already got this part. We figured this part out a long time ago. And when something is this familiar in Scripture, the danger that we have is is the thing that happens so many times Uh, In Jesus's interactions with the Pharisees where he would say things like, hey, you honor me with your lips, you're saying the right things, it sounds good, but your heart is actually far from me. This should be a moment for us as a church to just say, hey, God has got us here in in this chapter, in this book, let's pause and let's ask him to help us receive it in a fresh way. And that's what we want to do. So this chapter is often called the love chapter. It certainly is all about love, isn't it? And I take no issue with someone having this read in their wedding. I think it was read in my wedding with my wife. I take no issue with someone exhorting a husband and a wife to live in this kind of love toward one another. But we have to remember, that's not what Paul was primarily focused on when he wrote this chapter. It's not primarily about the kind of love between a husband and a wife. Remember, this letter is not just something that we can pull verses from for our coffee cup company or our t-shirt company. This is the word of God that was written to a particular people at a particular place in a particular time. And it's profitable still to all of us, to Christians everywhere and in every time. But imagine going to a wedding (laughs) where they don't skip those first three verses uh, and someone stands up and starts to say, hey, We're going to talk about talking like an angel, and we're going to talk about being burned alive, and people are like, this is a weird wedding. Why did we come to this? Well, this is where it is because it's taken in the context of the whole. So think with me. Chapter 12 is Paul giving us a better understanding of what the gifts are. Chapter 14, uh, the next chapter, is going to be Paul saying, here's how to eagerly desire and pursue operating in the gifts rightly. But where we are today, chapter 13, he's saying to us, but if you get this one thing wrong, none of it matters. Paul is moving in his explanation that we heard last week in chapter 12 to an understanding of how to use the gifts in chapter 14. And it's like he's saying, I'm training you in how to operate in some real weapons in spiritual warfare that are powerful. But like all things, that are powerful, they also can be dangerous, and so there needs to be an accompanying purpose and motivation. And uh, if I just turn the keys over to you and I say, "Go, go for it, have at it," then some things are going to get messy, some things are going to get weird, some things are going to get dangerous. So he writes to him, and I have to say, as we've studied this letter. Over the last nine and a half months, we started last August, I believe, as we continue to study this slowly. The thing that just sticks out to me again and again and again as we just have a careful reading of the, the chapters is just the way that Paul loves these people deeply and he loves them enough to come after him. I mean, it, he is just spitting fire up these people week after week. And I think that we love to soften and tenderize his words because we think it's the Bible. It's got to be nice. It's got to be gentle. But it's not always that way. It's just right hook after right hook, not to be mean, but actually to be loving. Because he knows what is at stake is the glory of God in the church, in the midst of these people, the church that is meant to be a pillar and buttress of truth for the world around them and the world around us. And I don't know how well... Uh, We've painted the picture of first century Corinth to you as we've worked through this. But in one word, guys, it was bananas. It was bananas. It's uh, just give you a few things. At this point, it's been rebuilt as a Roman colony after being destroyed roughly 200 years earlier. And it's this really important location geographically for trade and for commerce. And money is just flowing into this place. It is booming. And so every single kind of dark way that money can be spent, every single kind of dark way that, that money can be uh, made, it's happening. They're, they're uh, a mix of every culture, every background, economic backgrounds, rich and poor, all in one place. And what you see if you look at, at the map of this ancient Corinth is there are temples scattered all across the city, like, uh, like Scooter's coffee drive throughs you know? They're just popping up all over the place. Or the way that we would talk about how there are churches on every corner. This is Corinth, but with these pagan temples. And there are pagan temples all over the place where people are just invited to come in and kind of like choose their own adventure. Hey, what do you want to worship today? Come on in. We'll figure it out. Uh, And most of these places are temples of pagan prostitution. So they're not temples in the way that we would think of it. And if it was too much work to go into a temple to hire a prostitute, uh, there's a historian, Strabo, has recorded that at this time uh, in Corinth, there would have been roughly a thousand prostitutes that came down from the mountain from from the temple of Aphrodite every night into the city of Corinth. Throughout the entire Roman world, there was a verb that was coined that was meant to to say uh, what it was like to act like a Corinthian in engaging in fornication. The word was Corinthiazo. So when you heard that word, you knew, oh man, I know what this is about. This place was bananas. It was like Burning Man was happening every single night. This is Corinth. This is the place that he's writing to. Think of the wildest city that you can imagine and then multiply it by about 10. Um, One one, uh, theologian, Gordon Fee, he says it this way, all the evidence together suggests that Paul's Corinth was at once New York, Los Angeles, and Las Vegas of the ancient world. Not bad. And the issues that Paul is addressing can be summed up as he goes on to say, although they were the Christian church in Corinth, an inordinate amount of Corinth was yet in them emerging in a number of attitudes and behaviors that required radical surgery without killing the patient. This is what this letter attempts to do. So here we are. These are people that are believing that you can take the Christian out of Corinth, but you just can't take the Corinth out of the Christian. And the nature of the Corinthian city, as we've learned, is again and again, they want to take the good gifts of God. They want to take things like drink and food, and sex, and they want to just elevate them to the place of worship, and they want to go crazy with them. And as Paul is addressing this church in this letter, what we're seeing is that here we have baptized converted Christians who now see the things that are given by God as spiritual things, but they're doing the same thing with them. They're going crazy with them. They're elevating them to the place of God. And this many pages into the letter, Man, we're just getting the idea that Paul's just not going to give up. He's not pulling any punches. He actually seems pretty committed to teaching old dogs new tricks, no matter how set in their ways, no matter how much they've misunderstood the grace of the gospel. He's going to keep discipling them. And at the end of chapter 12, he said he wants them to pursue the gifts, but he wants them to move deeper now to show them a more excellent way, a way that if they can understand, it's going to bring everything else in life into focus. And the same is true for us. So the end of chapter, I I think we get into chapter 13 and we think, surely, here we go, this is the love chapter. Surely there will be a reprieve from all of the rebukes, but he just doesn't let off the gas. Even in his affirmations, he's he's giving them uh, ways that they've failed. He's going to say things like, love doesn't rejoice in wrongdoings, but rejoices in the truth to people that were celebrating a man who was sleeping with his stepmother. This is what he says to him. He wrote the words, love does not envy or boast to a group of people who were rivalrous toward one another, boasting about their gifts, boasting about their favorite leaders that they like to listen to. He wrote that love is not irritable or resentful to a group of people that for 12 chapters now, he's been just trying to convince them to lay down their rights that they keep wanting to talk about. And here, he does not stop the flutter of gut punches again and again. And um, I just have this mental image like, I don't know if you've ever received an email or gotten something in the mail and you think it's going to be one thing, and it just ends up being like, oh, that is not what I thought I was getting in the mail. Like, I just have this mental image of them going like, hey, guys, we got a letter from Paul. Let's all gather around. Let's all read it. Let's check this out. Let's see what he has to say. And like, they start by you know, walking around and reading it, standing up, and like an hour in, they're like sitting down like with their hands on their heads, just like, oh my goodness, I can't believe he's saying all this to us. Uh, this is the picture that we have, and so three things here in this chapter that I want us to, to take away in our short time together. One, he talks to us about the value of love, and then he's going to talk to us about the nature of love, and then finally, we see the permanence of love. So, first thing, the value of love. Read with me again, starting with verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clang- clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge and have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Today, again, we have this fascinating glimpse. Into the Corinthian church. We already know that these guys have demonstrated immaturity, rivalry, ways that they were kind of building up their little factions. Do you remember uh, in chapter one when Paul has to confront them? Because some of them they were bragging about which of the apostles that they like to listen to or like they like to follow more than others. Some were a part of the Paul Club, some were like Team Apollos. And then he had these like super spiritual Christians who were like, that's fine, but we only listen to Jesus. <laughs> like hashtag Jesus Duke. We had th- those guys, you remember? He was talking to them. And then in chapter 11, they're deciding who to allow to drink the good wine and who to allow to taste the good bread when they come to the Lord's Supper. And there's, you know, some people are like, hey man, that's a 10-year Cabernet. I brought that from my house. You're not allowed to taste that. And Paul's like, guys, You've completely missed the point of what this meal even is. Here we get into chapter 12 and 13, and we see in a subtle way, Paul is addressing that people are again comparing themselves, wanting to create some competition, and now they're talking about the gifts. Now they start to talk and brag about which gifts they got. So the, the, the picture that we have is, you know, one guy says, hey man, what'd you get? Oh, I got tongues. Oh man, that's great but it's not as good as mine. I got prophecy. And you got the other people that are over here and they're like, you guys continue to argue about, you know, which gifts are better. We're going to be over here selling everything that we have to give it all way to the poor. You know, those are the super spiritual uh, Christians that we see in Corinth. And Paul, he gets to this place. He's just like, guys, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. And he gives us a a metaphor. And if I were writing this letter to you all, to say like, hey, I want to illustrate some tragic missing of the point. I would, you know, I, I would try to paint some picture of like, you know, imagine someone who had a multi-million dollar rose garden, but they had no sense of smell. Oh man, tragic, right? Hey, imagine somebody who was invited to come and dine like at a Michelin star restaurant, but they had no sense of taste. Oh, terrible, tragic. Hey, imagine someone who sold everything that they had, bought a cabin in the mountains with a beautiful view, but they had lost their sense of sight. Tragic, right? The problem with my metaphors is they would be tragic, but only for one person. And what we see is Paul is using the metaphor of symphonic instruments to show us again that being able to walk in the gifts or not being able to walk in the gifts actually isn't about us, but it's about others. It's about the people around us. If you've ever listened to a symphony orchestra, every single little sound is on purpose, contributing to the whole piece. If you've ever gone to a symphony, it's amazing, amazing experience. Um, if you're there early enough, like you, you, you get this, you get this uh, experience where everyone's like, the symphony is warming up, they're tuning, and it sounds crazy. It actually doesn't sound like what you thought it was going to sound like. It sounds more like a barnyard than it does you know, music, and, uh, you know, you're, like, looking, like, why are they all playing different notes? This is crazy, and, you know, somebody's, like, opening up a spit valve, and saliva's, like, going on the ground, and you go, did we pay for tickets for this? But something happens when the conductor stands up with his baton, right? Magic starts to come from that stage. It's incredible. Hundreds of sounds coming together to make something beautiful conducted down to the last detail to create one composition. And the reason that it's beautiful is because all of the individual musicians are playing their piece that complement or build up the others, right? That's the picture that we have. But now, what, what if in the middle of that one beautiful piece that's all coming at us, what if in the middle of that, you have a guy in the back and he's like, I got the cymbals. You know, this sounds pretty good. But you know what this song needs? More cowbell. That's what this song needs. Or, or it needs a gong solo, man. They need me to get after it. That would actually ruin everything. It wouldn't just ruin his part, it would ruin the whole composition. And so that that's the picture that Paul is giving us in chapter 13. He's zooming out and he's asking, what is the whole thing even about? all these gifts, serving in the church, edifying one another, what is all this even about? What is this for? Chapter 12 that we heard last week gives us all instruments to play. Chapter 13 tells us what the symphony is supposed to sound like. The church exists because the love of God has been poured into our hearts through faith by the work of the Son, applied to us by the work of the Spirit, And if the overflow stops there, then we have nothing. This is the way that Jonathan Edwards said it. There in heaven, this infinite fountain of love, this eternal three-in-one is set open without any obstacle to hinder access to it as it flows forever. There, this glorious God is manifested and shines forth in full glory in beams of love. And there, this glorious fountain forever flows forth in streams. Yea, in rivers of love and delight in these rivers, and these rivers swell, as it were, to an ocean of love in which the souls of the ransomed may bathe with the sweetest enjoyment and and their hearts, as it were, be deluged with love. It's a good picture. This week in studying this passage, I just kept coming back to the words, if I have love, then I am nothing. I just kept coming back to that. What is he, man? What is he getting at? Why does he use the word "I am nothing"? And what I thought I would do today is just do the cool pastor thing, where you go like, "Hey guys, I dug into the Greek, and I just want you to know what it really means." And so I used the tools, you know, I dug into that, and uh, and I found out it just means nothing. <laughs> that's all it means. Uh, one of the lexicons says "not anything." So if that's helpful, there you go. It just means nothing. So as I dug into that, I think it's possible at the very least that he just means all of my effort, all of my desire to use my gifts. If they're divorced from love, then it's just a big waste of my time. I think it's at least that. But I couldn't get past thinking that maybe also it's more than that. So, you know, without putting my own words in Paul's mouth from this book, I want to at least give you a couple other places in Scripture that I think should arrest us. As we we think about what he's saying here, 1 John 4, 8, really clear and simple. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Matthew chapter 7, there's this really crazy, scary place where Jesus is talking to people and he says to them, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? Did we not do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I think there's something to that when he says, if I have not love. I am nothing. This is the place that we find ourselves in our study today. And so, to shift the metaphor from last week for a moment from the body maybe to like a vehicle, think about this a more modern metaphor. Um, say you've got a vehicle, you've got all the parts, and you've got some that are really shiny and chrome, you've got some that are like interior soft leather. But if we don't have any fuel to put into the tank, we're not going anywhere. It's just something nice to look at. So Paul, he tells us the value of love. It's crucial. It's critical. Not just as one ingredient, but the fuel that makes the whole body operate. And then he does the thing that first century Corinthians really need. And he does the thing that 21st century Americans really need really need, when everyone is talking about what their definition of love is, when everyone is just taking their cues from what the radio songs say love is, when people are watching things on Netflix like Love Island, I don't even know what that is, uh, when people are saying love is only a feeling, when, when love is only a choice, he actually gives some really clear definition to what the nature of love is. That's the next thing I want us to see. Verse four, read with me again, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So we're not going to have a chance to be completely exhaustive here, but I do want us to just kind of walk through this line by line, this definition, to just explore what is it that God might have for us to stir our hearts to greater love the people in our lives. And as we move through this, just kind of think of it this way with me. Um, Paul, he is, he's, he's using brush strokes to kind of paint a picture. And some of them are going to overlap and some of them are, are going to be more colorful than others. But if we only take one of these little things, it's only a brush stroke. You don't have the whole picture. So we got to take the whole thing and we got to put it together and go, what does love look like? The first thing he says is that love is patient. This is not necessarily about... Waiting on the family that is perpetually late to you know, come to family meal at community group. What, are we going to wait on them to bless the food? Do we know if they're coming? Not, I think we should wait on them. But that's, I don't think that's what he's getting at here. I think this is deeper. This is about being patient with one another as we grow up into maturity. It, it's not just patient like, okay, I'm going to just kind of stand aside and wait for this person to grow up. But it's long-suffering, and it's, it's the willingness to walk with them as they do. Seeing where God is growing someone to be, but not demanding that they get there immediately. Willing to stand in the growing pain with a brother or sister to carry their burdens with them. This is love. Love is patient, but love is also kind. Kind, uh, not nice, but kind. Kind. Niceness can be a veil for not wanting to go to the tension with a brother or sister, but kindness is the wound of a friend, the kind of love that a person could receive even if it's hard, knowing that you only and always have their best interest in mind and in heart. You're always rooting for them to grow up into Christ. Niceness can kind of mask itself as kindness, but it's actually rooted in avoiding the hard things that must be said, the hard things that must be done, even the boundaries that need to get put up in place in kindness. It was kindness. In 2018, a surgeon laid me on a table, put me to sleep, cut open my chest, broke open my sternum, stopped my heart, and cut out a failing aortic valve so that it could be replaced because it was killing me. And let me tell you, it hurt a lot, but it was the thing that needed to be done. This is a picture of this kind of love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love doesn't envy or boast. Paul is writing to people who have demonstrated again and again that they want what the other person has. I just want what the other person has. And when I get the thing that they have, I I love to talk about it. I love to boast about it. Hey, you ever have the thing that happens in your life where you're just like, man, this other guy, this other lady, every time I turn around, things are just going so well for them. It's just not fair. And it's like, it's more than jealousy. You're to a point where you're like, I kind of actually want to see something go badly for them. Too honest? that's envy. That's envy. Paul's saying love doesn't do that. Or the, the, the flip side of the ugly coin is, hey, things actually do flip and things start to go well for you. You want everybody to know about it. Let's get the spotlight on me for a little while. I want you guys to see how great things are going for me so that maybe you actually feel bad <laughs> about your situation. So that maybe you can stir up that kind of uh, envy in you that's boasting, and it's a cancer in the heart, and he's writing to say, guys, actually, love celebrates what God is doing in the other person. It's okay to celebrate with one another. He goes on to say, love is not arrogant or rude. This letter has already shown us times that the Corinthians, the Christian Corinthians, they're treating one another transactionally, So the people that come in that have something to offer, man, welcome. Come on in. We'd love to have you here. The people that don't have anything to offer, they're just not welcomed. Uh, they're, They're rejected or at least, you know, they're withholding their presence from them. Paul says, that's arrogance. That's rudeness. Love doesn't do that. He goes in chapter four, he asked this question. Hey, guys, what is it that you have that you have not received from God? Can you just point to one thing? Like you guys that are parents, you know this question in your house from like toddler to teenager, the thing that happens in your house where the kids start to say, hey, that's mine. And as parents, you go, hey, can you just point to one thing in this house that you like got a job and you paid, you earned money and you paid for it and now you're insuring it? Can you just point to one thing? There's nothing here that's that way. And Paul is saying to the Corinthians like, guys, why are you boasting? You don't have anything that hasn't been given to you out of the grace of God. Love isn't arrogant in that way, but rather it models the humility of Jesus. And then he goes on to say, love doesn't insist in its own way. <laughs> love does not insist on its own way. This one might kill community in the church and in families faster than any other. Um, just me personally, like when I, when I dig into like, God, why am I reacting The way that I'm reacting, I feel like when I'm being squeezed, it's like sinful stuff is seeping out of me. And again and again, God just shows me it's because you're still so selfish. You're just super selfish. Um, So I want to ask you, like, I think there's a lot of us, a few questions. Husbands and wives, in your marriage, do you insist on your own way? Or is the posture of your heart laying down your preference for the joy of your spouse? That would be a great thing to work through together. In your community groups, in what ways do you withhold your whole self from the people that are trying to love you? Do you put the well-being of those people before yourself, committing your time and your presence and your energy to them even when it's difficult? Hey, in ministries of the church, in quieter vocal ways, Do you feel that there's something happening in the ministry of the body that hasn't been planned exactly how you would plan it? And so your reaction is actually to withhold yourself instead of just like diving in and bringing all of your gifts and bringing your whole presence into that place that is imperfect. The way of love asks the question how can I defer to others? How can I lift up others around me even if my preferences get lowered? It doesn't insist on its own way. And then it's not irritable or resentful. Irritable, easily angered, just ready to blow up. This is the person that like, for whatever reason, you're just looking for confrontation with everybody around you. You're just looking for a fight. Is that you? Are you the person that like, everyone is dancing on eggshells around you or are you the kind of person That people can come to as a safe refuge. And they're going to know whether or not they agree with me. They're going to disagree in gentle and in kind ways. I can come to this person. I'm safe with them. Or, Or resentful. Maybe your translation says, keeps no record of wrongs. Love doesn't hold on to things from the past, just waiting for the chance to bring it back up. Are you a person who lets things go? Are you a person who resets with your brothers and sisters quickly, quickly giving them the benefit of the doubt? Real love, 1 Peter is gonna say, covers a multitude of wrongs against one another. That's the kind of love that we wanna show. Does not rejoice in wrongdoing, but in the truth. Hey, I know this is hard to believe. This is crazy. There are some people that love to watch others fail. Can you believe it? crazy, really surprising. Love doesn't do that. Some people love to stand back and watch the train wreck. You know what I mean? Um, They love to do that. And this is the heart of gossip. Hey, if you love to share or watch other people fail, can we just grow out of that? Like by God's grace, can we just say we're going to grow up out of that? I think at the, at the bottom of this is still kind of like that junior high thing where if other people fall, then somehow we're elevated a rung or two on the ladder. And Can I just say, people of God, if you're in Jesus, you have already been elevated higher than you ever should have been elevated. By his grace, he has seated you in the heavenly places. You don't need other people to fall down for you to raise up. That's really good news. Like you can hold on to that. And then he makes a shift from what love is to some specific things that love does. He gives us four things. We'll hit them quickly. Love bears all things. This is about carrying the weight that comes along with knowing what you're getting into in a relationship with another person and still loving them, staying with them, bearing with them. This is not like putting up with someone. This is saying, hey, man, I'm going to put my pack on too knowing that you're carrying stuff, and I want to carry some of that weight with you. I'm going to walk along this road. As long as you've got to carry it, I'm going to carry it with you too. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. This is not gullibility, as if the loving thing to do is just believe everything that we're told, but it's a call to lay down our cynicism and our skepticism toward the people in our lives. This is believing the best about the people That you love. Not assuming wrong motivations, not jumping to conclusions. Love doesn't start in the place of, oh boy, he said this, she said this, but let's see if it really happens. Love doesn't do that. Love starts in the place of, hey man, I'm gonna believe the best in you. And even if you fail, the next time I'm gonna believe the best in you again, and I'm gonna expect that you're gonna you're gonna follow through. I I believe in you. I'm believing all things. Hey, when there's a gap between what your expectation of a person is and your actual experience of how they followed through, when there's a gap between those two things, this word is saying you can fill that gap with bitterness and resentment if you want to. Or you can fill this gap with the love of God that covers a multitude of wrongs. And hey, when that gap is already full, there's no room for bitterness. There's no room for resentment. By the way, you know what's really great? Like, I don't know if you're reading this the way that I am, like full of conviction. What's really great about realizing that you've not loved someone well, you can ask forgiveness at any time. That's, really, that's a really simple good news. You can ask for forgiveness at any time. It would be great if we all read through this and we go, hey, God, we want to change the way that we love people. It would be great if, if we said, moving forward, we want to love better. But you know what would be even better if we did that? And we move toward the people in our lives and said, hey, there's some places where I haven't loved you the way that I want to. I would love to just ask for your forgiveness. And we forgive one another. That's what love does. So love bears all things, believes all things. Love hopes all things. Wishing is not the same as hoping. Hoping in the biblical sense is rooted in the deep belief that even when our eyes betray us, even when our hearts betray us, when our circumstances betray us, we know that there is coming a day when Jesus will make all things new. And until that day, he still has authority. So there are relationships that you have. There are relationships uh, that I have that take turns for the worse. And perhaps even now you have people in your life And you just see the way that they've drifted away toward things that you know to be dangerous for their bodies, toward things that you know to be dangerous for their souls. And you're tempted to despair because they're too far gone, gone from you, gone from the Father. And it's the love of God in us, rooted in the belief that he really is who he says he is, that allows us to keep hoping, hoping for a better day, hoping for healing, hoping for restoration, hoping... That the enemy, like we're rooted in hope, the enemy does not get the last word here because Jesus is still going after them. This is good news for us. Finally, love endures all things. This is the kind of heart that just says, hey, God has not given given up on me. He's still growing me. He's still maturing me, and I believe he's doing the same for you. Hey, you can give up on people. You can give up on people. Maybe you already have, but it will not be motivated in the love of God. Now, there are relationships that are abusive. There are relationships that are dangerous. And and, and those are relationships that you need to walk away from. That's not what this is talking about. This is talking about the people in our lives that frustrate us. This is talking about bearing all things, believing the best, letting hope rise to see the people in your life continue to mature in Jesus as he is maturing you, enduring with one another, until the day that Jesus sanctifies you and sanctifies them, remembering all the while, these are co-heirs. This is my brother. This is my sister. I'm going to spend the rest of eternity worshiping by their side. And with an eye to that day and with our hearts turned to that day, we read the last few verses. With the rest of our time, I hope you'll lean in to these last few verses because I think we'll find some incredibly Encouraging words here. Verse 8 Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Let me jump to, to verse 12. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Hey, how amazing is it that no matter how perfectly we get prophecy right, it's going away? How amazing is it that no matter how, how much we're able to, to work out perfectly the gift of tongues, interpretation of tongues, those things are Temporary. Think about a measure of faith that you could carry in your soul that would change you, that would change the people around you, the kind of faith that you dream about having that would move mountains. There's coming a day where God is like, hey, we don't need that one anymore. You can set that one down. That's crazy to me. Why? Because when the perfect comes, those gifts just won't be necessary. And so I want to ask, like, what does that mean? What is the perfect? uh, Some of our our cessationist friends will say, well, that's referring to the canon of scripture. Now that we have the canon of scripture, we just don't need the gifts anymore. And I would say to those friends, I think that you have some, you've got to do some, some pretty crazy matrix backbends to get there. And the reason I believe that is actually just the next few words that we read. I will know fully, even as I have been fully known. Hey, I hope you commit yourself to the study of scripture. Like I hope you love the word of God. I hope you dig into it. I hope you got friends that you study it with. I hope it comes alive in your life. I hope it comes alive in your heart. But is there anybody here that would say, "Man, I understand the scripture so well that I just don't have any more questions." Like I just I I know this book so much that even like a conversation with Jesus himself just wouldn't help me. Is there anyone here? I am not in that place. If you are, I would love to, to, to meet you. Um, there's coming a day though, and I think that most theologians, and what I think is really clear in this passage is that, that the perfect is talking about the day that we are in the presence of God himself. I was so sad to hear that Pastor Tim Keller on Friday morning passed away, uh, lost his battle with cancer. If, you don't, if you've not read Tim Keller, if you've not listened to Pastor Keller, amazing man of God, pastor, author, by all accounts, loved his family, loved his church, loved his city, church planner in New York City. and he was a man that I think many of us would just say, "He just really helped me understand the Word of God. He just really helped me. He helped me to love Jesus more. This was a man that I would just look at him and go like, "Man, somehow he just gets it. The Word of God is alive to him. He knows it thoroughly." But you know what's crazy? Pastor Tim Keller passed away on Friday morning. He went to sleep on Thursday night looking through a mirror dimly, like a foggy piece of glass. He woke up on Friday morning able to see everything, able to to fully understand exactly what is happening. And, And I just have to say, like, I genuinely ask God, probably every week I ask God questions that I just know I probably am not going to get answers to before the day I come face to face with Jesus. I long for this day. I look forward to this day. The idea of seeing the perfect, coming face to face with the perfect, I long for this day. The idea that Paul talks about in the letter to the Second Corinthians letter, the idea of the weight of glory, there's coming a day for me where the weight of life, all of the pain of life lifts off and the only thing I'm ever gonna know again is the weight of God's glory in his presence. I long for that day. I look forward to that day a lot. But until then, I just wanna say, like, if you're willing to go here with me for the last couple of minutes, think about the most painful thing that you've ever carried in this life. Think about those things, things that have caused you to doubt, things that have caused you to wrestle, This list is getting longer for me. The longer I live, the more I'm in ministry, the more I know you guys and your stories, things that I have questions about, things that I just don't understand. Um, I know that there are some things that are gonna change for us in an instant. I know, like the scriptures talk about that in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, some things are gonna change. But also, Revelation talks about the truth that Jesus himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Think about the intimacy that comes with something like that. Someone looks you directly in the face. They see the pain in your eyes and they wipe the tears away. This is what Jesus is going to do for us. And I don't know if you've ever thought about it, but I really just don't think it's going to be like a thing where we walk through a gate and we're going to be zapped into a new level of understanding. I think that When we get to the great day, we're with Jesus face to face. Time will no longer be a commodity. Like we're just not going to run out of time for it. We're going to have plenty of time. And I think Jesus himself is going to sit us down and he's going to invite us to process those places of pain. He's going to invite us to share with him what we were feeling. And he's going to say, hey, here's what I was doing the whole time. It felt so painful. You could not see what I was doing. Here's what I was up to. Here's how I was working. And he's going to wipe away. He's going to be the one to wipe away every tear from our eyes. I long for that day, friends. So here we are. We have chapters 12 and 14. They help us to know about the grace gifts. All that is meant for us to build one another up. And that's what he's helping us to see. Paul is like, go for it. Go for those gifts. Earnestly desire those things. Run towards them. But... This way of love, this way of laying your life down, it's the more excellent way. It's the foundation for all of our Christian faith. This is the thing that if you get right, everything else will come into focus. Pursue that first. Will you guys stand with me? Hey, as we come to the table today, uh, one of the things that I just want us to recognize and feel the weight of is this definition of love, these words that have been written, this is not like Paul's good ideas about what he, these are not like Paul's hot takes on love. He's giving us a picture of divine love. He's saying, hey, think about the truth of this. This is the way that Jesus has loved you. When you were wandering, love was patient. When you were far from God, it was his kindness that moved Toward you. Love was kind. If there was ever one that could boast in his own righteousness and hold it over our heads, it would be Jesus. If there was ever one that could be irritable and resentful toward you because you continue to fail again and again and again, it would be Jesus. But friends, that is not what he has given us. He's given us his love. He's given us his perfect forgiveness. And so we come to the table today. We remember the body and the blood of Jesus that was broken for us, the one that bears all things for us, the one that endures all things for us. And we receive again this meal until the day with an eye towards the day where we actually receive it in his presence. And on that day, he's gonna be the one at the head of the table. Hey, if you're not a follower of Jesus today, we're so glad that you're with us. We're, we're honored that you would be here. You're invited to come to anything that we do. You're invited to gather up in these circles and listen to us pray. But the one thing I just wanna ask you to please not do is take the bread and take the wine because for us, this is a meal of faith. When we receive this bread, when we receive this cup, it's us saying it was Jesus's body and blood as a sacrifice in my place that paid for my sins. So it's it's my only hope. It's not my own righteousness before God. It's only the work of the Son. That's what we're saying when we do this. So if you would just honor us by not receiving, we would love for you to to join us for followers of Jesus. Here's where I would love to encourage you today. Gather with your small groups, with your family, with your friends, with your com- community group. And listen, in our church, we're going to go for it on the gifts. We want we've been praying this prayer for 20 years. God, if it's real, we want it. If it's not real, we don't care about it. But if it's real and it's from your Holy Spirit, we want it. We're gonna go for the gifts. But today, as you gather around the body and blood of Jesus, could we just pray this simple prayer? God, more than we need anything else, we need to be filled again with your love. We need to be filled up with your love for our family, for our friends, for our neighbors, for our coworkers. Would you again fill us afresh with your love? That's the prayer. When you're ready, followers of Jesus, you can come.